Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Thank you for tuning in to episode 39 of Discovering the Old Testament. This time we are going to take a look at one of the most difficult, powerful, and controversial books in the entire Judeo-Christian corpus, the book of Job. Since this book concerns itself with a lot of pain and suffering, perhaps this is also a good time to remind our listeners that this podcast is made possible, in part, by contributions from our listeners. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to donate to this podcast on our website, located at Lafkos Press, L-A-F-K-O-S Press dot com. Throughout our study of the Old Testament, we have watched its authors, prophets, editors, and redactors grapple with Israel's failure to live up to her covenantal obligations and realize the promises that went with it. The point of all this grappling, besides trying to understand what went wrong, was to seize the opportunity presented by the return from exile in Babylon. Here was a second chance, a chance to begin again with the benefit of hindsight in the form of all those records from before to use as a guide. Following the exile, the question of what went wrong took on sudden, urgent, immediate relevance when it was recast as a new question, namely, what must we do this time in order to get it right? As we've discussed in previous installments, several schools of thought emerged in answer to both of those questions. The most conventional, one might say, was the Deuteronomistic school. It saw the neglect of covenant obligations as the primary reason for Jerusalem's destruction and the key to existential safety in the future. The prophetic tradition, as exemplified by Isaiah, Jeremiah, the Minor Prophets, and Ezekiel, at least in part, took a different view. For them, the punishment had less to do with religious formalities and covenant than it did with the failure of Israel to care for the vulnerable, the poor, and the downtrodden. In fact, Isaiah goes so far as to state that one would do better to eliminate the entire cultic practice than to neglect those in need. Yet another school of thought belongs to what modern scholars call the chronicler, whose works we have not yet discussed, but are mainly represented in the books of Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Their contention was that the failure of Israel was due to its failure to observe proper forms of worship. It was also due to the work of Ezra, who is strongly identified with the chronicler school. He consolidated the Torah, essentially canonized it as scripture, and established its study as the primary act of devotion among the people. Shortly before and immediately after the return from exile, we also find an emerging wisdom tradition among Israel. This is a very important movement that gets too little attention, in my opinion, when discussing Old Testament religious thinking and theology. Wisdom literature is found all over the ancient Near East. 
It's quite possible that the exile in Babylon allowed the Jewish people prolonged exposure to this vast body of thought. Wisdom might best be described as ancient success literature that manifests itself as pithy sayings, fables, riddles, aphorisms, such as we find in Proverbs, a few post-exilic psalms, and a few of the passages of the later prophets, particularly Isaiah. Ecclesiastes is also a classic example of wisdom literature, as are some of the apocryphal works from the intertestamental period, such as Ben Sirach, the Book of Tobit, or the Wisdom of Solomon. These books were eventually discarded by Judaism, but Christianity eagerly scooped them up, where they had considerable influence, even if they never quite made the canonical cut for Christianity. The point is, all of these schools of thought had in common the assumption that if you behaved yourself, if you did whatever it was that you were supposed to do, God would reward you and bless you and things would be just fine. The promises of the covenant would be realized. Sometimes one had to put up with some setbacks that made patience a virtue, but everything always worked out in the end. After all, didn't the worst catastrophe imaginable, the fall of Jerusalem, the loss of the temple, and the land of Canaan get reversed? What more proof does one need that God will ensure that things work out? In answer, the book of Job comes crashing figuratively through the wall in a shower of splintered wood, brick, and broken glass and says, Not so fast! This book is the mother of all reality checks, and it will kick your backside if you're committed to the do-good-and-everything-will-work-out formula of life. Job insists that if you are going to address misfortune and tragedy, you have to confront the very real and inconvenient fact that bad things happen to good people for no discernible reason. Job places the ultimate problem of religion, the problem of undeserved suffering, under the lights to strut and fret its hour upon the stage for all to see and deal with. There is a bias, common among critics of religion in general, and the Bible in particular, that it does not deal with the real world as it actually is. Job refutes that critique with extraordinary power. Nowhere will you find a more unblinking, unvarnished look at the problem that plagues, perhaps even defines, the human condition. We spoke last time in our discussion of Ezekiel about the Bible interpreting itself, but here is something even more remarkable. In Job, we have an example of the Bible critiquing, even confronting itself. One can be excused for asking how on earth such a contrarian work ever became part of the scriptural canon, but a big part of the answer lies in what constitutes scripture in different times and places. Our modern world tends to view how-to literature in a way rather like we see in Proverbs, do one thing and another thing will follow. There is also an expectation driven perhaps by the much later phenomenon of biblical literalism and inerrancy, that the Bible must be completely consistent in its message and teachings. If it were shown to be otherwise, then it would lose its authority. The ancients didn't think about scripture that way. 
It is true that allegorical and metaphorical interpretation played a big role in helping to deal with or explain away troubling issues. It's also true that in some cases, parts of scripture were literally rewritten in apocryphal versions to smooth over parts of the Bible that offended later sensibilities. For example, the Genesis Apocryphon from the Dead Sea Scrolls rewrites the story of Abraham and Abimelech in order to make Abraham look a lot better than he does in the original story in Genesis. But Judaism and later Christianity evolved a more mature means of reading that acknowledged that sometimes things do not go as they are supposed to go. Putting ambiguity down to God's inscrutable ways or being beyond human comprehension is neither satisfactory nor honest with regard to the text. It was thinking along these lines that eventually brought Job into the canon, even though there was significant resistance to the idea. Another question about Job's for modern readers is its age. The book itself presents a bit of a puzzle, since it is laced with all kinds of arcane language and loanwords from Akkadian and other scholarly Semitic languages. The use of archaisms was most likely an effort on the part of the author to lend the gravitas of age to the story, a common device among authors of all ages and places. We do get some insight into the date of this book by the fact that Ezekiel mentions Job among the champions of justice in Israelite history, which argues that the book, or at least the story of Job, was known in his lifetime. Even if the composition or final redaction of Job is relatively late, the, the literary theme is quite old. There are other stories of this type from outside the Israelite literary corpus that use the theme of undeserved suffering. One in particular, which modern scholars call the Sumerian Job, contains a number of parallels with Job's story, even though we only have a small fragment of the text. Another is a Babylonian document called I Will Praise the Lord of Wisdom that, like Job, deals with the problem of suffering by calling for increased trust in God. However, the content, the ideas as expressed in the writing of Job itself are clearly representative of the later wisdom tradition. But quite a bit of what we find of the wisdom tradition, and even the prophetic tradition, is presented as parody of those very traditions, lampooning wisdom teachers and pious prophets who insist against clear empirical evidence that everything happens for a reason and everything will be all right. Other interesting items about Job is that he is described as living in the land of Uz. The short version of the implications here is that Job and his family were not Jewish. This takes yet another poke at conservative religious sensibilities, which held that Jews were more likely to have a special relationship with God than non-Jews. The troubles of Job start with a bet between God and Satan, who counters God's expression of admiration for Job's righteousness by pointing out that Job has it good 
prosperity, thriving family. Life is good. Why wouldn't he be pious? Take away all his worldly goodies, Satan claims, and Job will change his tune. The deal is struck, and Satan takes Job from living on the heights to abject poverty in what sounds like a matter of hours. Job does not retract his devotion to God, so Satan asks God to let him raise the stakes to include Job's person. God agrees to this as well, but insists, just don't kill him. Satan then goes to work on Job with boils and sores and painful condition after painful condition. He doesn't kill Job, but Job himself starts to wonder if non-existence might have been better. At this point, uh, we should say a word about Satan. Modern Christians might find it strange that Satan has direct access to the throne of God as if he was a member of the heavenly court. But in this instance, that's exactly what he is. Satan in the Old Testament is not the satyresque, horned, apocalyptic, Jack Nicholson on crystal meth type of creature that we see in the New Testament period and thereafter. He is, as his name actually means, an accuser whose job it is to question the piety or lack of same among God's creatures. The Greek word used to refer to Satan, diabolos, means accuser and is the root of our word diabolical. But back to our story. Now that Job has had pretty much his entire life and livelihood shot out from under him, he must now deal with the question of why and, if there is an answer to that question, try to figure out where he goes from here. It is roughly at this point that Job adopts a posture of mourning, as would have been expected in Jewish culture, upon the loss of a relative or some other type of serious misfortune. The person in mourning adopts characteristic dress and posture, such as covering themselves with sackcloth, a very rough, itchy, and uncomfortable fabric, spreading ashes on themselves, and sitting on the ground, essentially adopting a posture of abject sorrow. There is a period of time, in the early part of the mourning period, when the mourner is expected to refuse all efforts by visiting friends and family members to console or comfort them. It is their opportunity to give vent to their feelings. However, Job says not a word for seven days and nights. His three friends, who have come to mourn with him and comfort him, realize that there isn't anything they could say at this point so they silently remain beside him. One of the things that makes Job such a remarkable character is his personal integrity, the testing of which was the whole point of the contest for which Job has become the unwitting football. Job's wife is among the first to chide him for his stubborn refusal to put the blame where it clearly belongs. Curse God and die, she advises. It is clear to her that Job has done nothing wrong, that his suffering is undeserved, and that God is not running the world according to spec. Her comment implies that Job's integrity, which was such an asset in the past, is now a liability. She is, of course, correct on several of these points. Job has done nothing wrong and does not deserve what he has received based on the tenets of righteous behavior. Job's answer, that one must accept both the good and the bad that come from God, neatly dodges the question of justice, but no matter. 
His friends will see to it that this gets a long and complete thrashing out. Job's friends are, like Job himself, not Jewish. However, they appear to have a good grasp of Jewish scripture in general and wisdom literature in particular. Their emotional support for Job turns to the why of it, as it must in such instances, but from there the friends become increasingly insistent that Job must have done something to earn such brutal punishment, as it clearly was. They keep after him, trying to get him to fess up to his sin, but Job, to his credit, refuses every effort to get him to compromise his integrity by confessing to sins he did not commit. This is rather extraordinary in itself. It argues a remarkable self-awareness on Job's part that he didn't even consider that he accidentally offended God. As the debate continues, it becomes clear that the only one who can answer this question is God himself, and Job demands an account of God's relationship with humanity, since Job's situation is not unique. Many others suffer needlessly, and many go unpunished, even if they are clearly guilty. Eventually, Job's insistence that God take the witness stand, as it were, happens and God speaks to Job out of a whirlwind. God rather imperiously asks Job a series of rhetorical questions about the origins and workings of the universe as a way of driving home the point that Job does not know what God knows. Even though Job later acknowledges his ignorance and lack of understanding, the perceptive reader will note that God never does answer Job's question. God speaks again to Job out of a whirlwind a second time, but this time he takes a different tack and describes Leviathan, a beast found in many Semitic mythologies. This fearsome creature is associated with the forces of chaos, unalterably opposed to the created order. God describes him as controllable, but he also emphasizes that he is one tough customer who demands ultimate power to hold in check. Reading between the lines, we may be forgiven for detecting a subtext here, namely that bad things happen because the universe still has chaos in it, constantly striving to break free, still capable of mischief. It's almost as if God were saying to Job, you think you've got problems, look what I have to deal with. Job does get his vindication. He cannot prove his accusations against God, and he does not receive an answer to the problem of undeserved suffering. But what he does receive is epiphany, the presence of God and an enhanced relationship with him. God says, in effect, you have to trust me, and I will always be there for you, whatever happens. Job repents, but the word for repentance here is not the usual Hebrew word for turning away from sin. It is instead a word that implies deepest grief and self-deprecation. Most scholars believe that the book originally ends at that point, but there is another ending tacked on, a much happier one. Job gets back twice what he lost. He also has the satisfaction of seeing God chastise his friends. God commends Job for his honesty, while his friends are castigated for misrepresenting God in their debate. 
Job has maintained his integrity even when he was giving God the third degree. This Hollywood ending seems like a cop-out. It obscures the fact that Job still suffered unjustly, but it also makes the point that sometimes, even in the face of inexplicable loss and catastrophe, things really do work out. What else does the book of Job teach? It makes clear that there is ambiguity in the world, and that it is okay to question it, even to the point of questioning God himself. Job's God may not always have an answer, and may throw his weight around in order to demonstrate his superior knowledge and power, but he's not so big that one of his creatures cannot be angry, even furious at him, especially when the accusation is valid. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament. Thank you.